Father, we thank you for the coolness of this day, for the blessings of your almighty hand that come upon us each and every day. Father, as we consider not only history, but the world in which we live today, we have to recognize that we are uh, amongst the most blessed people who live today in terms of the physical blessings that we have in this country. And yet, Father, certainly the trials and tribulations that come our way are as significant as they are in many other areas. And our faith needs to be strong. And certainly through the study of your word, one of the great purposes is to strengthen our faith, to help us to believe that you are the God of the impossible, that you're the God who cares, that you're the God who is there for us. And Lord, I pray that through the study of your word, our understanding of your nature, of your character, of your attributes will be enhanced, and that the foundation of our faith will be stronger, and that we will be greater uh, in our faith and more explicit in our desire to serve you. Lord, bless this time. We ask that throughout our Sunday school hour this morning in each and every class, you will be present in a way that uh, changes hearts and lives. In Christ's name, amen. amen. I'd like for us to read in the third chapter of Exodus, beginning at verse 9 through verse 12. We have, for the last two, three weeks, been looking at the encounter of Moses with God at the burning bush. And, of course, this is such a profound event that numerous sermons uh, every year are preached on this particular topic. And certainly, uh, it's not been exhausted even through these many sermons and so as we look at this event, we can learn from it truths that will apply to our hearts and lives, certainly. Verse 9, And now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Moses has made a mighty turn in his life, literally a 180 degree turn, from what he had been 40 years before, as he had attempted in the flesh to at least begin a, a program to redeem his people. But uh, 40 years in the wilderness has worked its uh, way into his heart and life, and his pride has been pretty much uh, diminished, and his self-confidence reduced. He's finally in the process of being prepared to be used by God. Now, I don't think that was in his mind. He's not thinking, aha, what's happening here is preparation for God's service. <laughs> I think he was just, as I mentioned before, committed to the fact that I'm going to be herding sheep for the rest of my life here. Whether he knew it or not, God was preparing him for his purpose. And certainly we can understand how that applies to our own lives. We don't always see that what's happening to us is God preparing us for some future service. We think of it as just big pain in the neck. You know, some big problem, some big trial, some difficulty, some mountain to get over. <sighs> Made it over that one, you know. Another ordeal to get through, just kind of the way life is rather than seeing each of these difficulties, these mountains to surmount, is a, a part of God's program of preparation. Preparation, I believe, both for service in this life, but of course beyond that, for the day when we will stand in His presence. And He will say, hopefully, well done, thou good and faithful servant. P part of what our goal should be in life is to get to know Him. So that when we stand before him on that uh, fateful day, 
it won't be as big a surprise. I mean, certainly we're going to be awed by the grandeur of his majesty. But if we come to know him more and more in this life, the more we will seem to fit in at the time when we stand before him. Paul, many, many centuries later, would acknowledge the key to usefulness to God. He said in the process of talking about his trials and his weaknesses and so forth, he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. And of course what he's saying by that is that God can really use us when we finally recognize that in our own strength, our own talent, our own ability, we can't do the job. We can accomplish nothing of eternal value in our own strength. I'm not going to go out there and just grit my teeth and win souls for Christ. They're going to come to Christ as he chooses to work through me as I become potter in the clay in the potter's hand, as it were. Moses, I think here, when he says to God, who am I that I should do this? There's no false humility here. He's not saying, who am I should, that I should do this, hoping that God will come back with some you know, great praise for him. No, he's not fishing for a compliment here. I think he's very sincere. Who am I that I should do this great thing? And I think it's when that is in our minds and hearts as a true response, then God can really use us. Many times, young men, when they go forth from seminary, go forth uh, as if they're going to take the bull by the horns. And they're going to get, you know, some lucky church is going to get them for a pastor. pastor <laughs> and, and they're going to really set this church on fire. <laughs> it, it quite often takes quite a few hard knocks along the way before they finally recognize that they're not going to do anything. It's God who does it, as we are the instrument in his hand. And Moses has had 80 years to, lose, to learn a great deal of humility. Moses knew that he had no influence and he didn't have any credibility with either Pharaoh or Israel. So he just blustered right on in there and said to Pharaoh, you've got to let my people go. I mean, what a big joke. Pharaoh had said, Who, where is this madman? He's obviously been in the desert too long. He's been sunstruck. Uh, just toss him in the nearest clink and uh, be, be rid of him. But God had asked him to do a task, and Moses knew that this task was far beyond his ability. I cannot do this task. And that was a true statement. He couldn't do the task. And we need to also, of course, whenever we face a task, recognize that we cannot do this task. No matter how small it might seem. You know, some, some people view, uh, for example, uh, teaching. That uh, to teach adults is of greater value and more prestige than to teach little children. Well, that's not the way God views it. Because if we go to the task of thinking, well, it's, you know, it's a piece of cake teach little kids. Uh, then we're not going to be very useful. It's no piece of cake. Um, the only way little kids can be touched, same way adults can be touched, is if God works through the instrument, whoever that instrument might be. And so it's recognizing that we don't have the ability, we don't have the strength to do it. It's God's purpose in this particular passage and as it records what God is about here, to instill in Moses' faith. Because as Moses has faith, then he will be motivated to be obedient. I can do this task because God is empowering me to do it. That's God's program. That's God's plan here. There are many, many passages in Scripture which illustrate how God did this. I just picked one because I thought it was rather uh, dramatic from Second Chronicles as an illustration of how God instills faith which motivates then obedience. Most of us are familiar with the king in Judah by the name of Hezekiah who ruled in that land in the 8th century before Christ. And Hezekiah was one of those who did right in the eyes of God. He was far from perfect, of course. Uh, he had his failings. In fact, he would raise up a son who would be a monster. 
until God would finally get a hold of his heart at the end of his reign. But uh, Hezekiah was a man who was faced with a tremendous threat, the greatest threat that Israel had faced up to that moment, or that Judah had faced up to that moment. I mean, Judah faced ultimate extermination. They faced the vast armies of Assyria. And the Assyrian Empire was an empire that, as, as it reached out, we're talking about the Neo-Assyrian Empire that came to, uh, to uh, influence about the middle of the 8th century before Christ and continued to be powerful and influential for about 150 years. Uh, the armies of Assyria were um, unstoppable. They had marched to the north, the south, the east, the west. They had pushed the Assyrian borders out to include the whole, virtually the whole Fertile Crescent. And as, as the king of Assyria would, would uh, proclaim and bra uh, brag, he would say, I, who, who are you that, that you should stand in our way? Who is your God that he should stop us? Because we have put the gods of all these other peoples in cages and carried them on back to Assyria. So who is your God that he should be any different? Well, Hezekiah faced this, this mass invasion of an army that was so huge and powerful that he couldn't begin to match it. And city after city in Judah was falling as the army of Assyria marched closer and closer to Jerusalem. And Hezekiah faced this dilemma, what to do. And you can read about it, of course, in, in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, and then there's a major section in, in the book of Isaiah, because Isaiah was the prophet whom God used to speak to Hezekiah to bring to him uh, God's encouragement. And, and this is the impact of the faith that was instilled in Hezekiah by God. These are Hezekiah's words. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the multitude which is with him. For the one with us is greater than the one with him. With him is only the arm of the flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the peoples relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. God used Hezekiah to broadcast words of faith, encouragement, and hope. In some ways, that's the, 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 the job of the pastor of a church, the leader of a, of a group of people who are God's people, to broadcast words of a hope. And the people will rely on those words as the words of the Lord and believe and hope and trust. And as you know, uh, from your, certainly your study of the Old Testament, what happened to Hezekiah? What happened to Jerusalem? Well, God's words through Isaiah were that not even a single Assyrian arrow would fly over the wall of Jerusalem. Well, I mean, that's an absurd thought, humanly speaking. And yet it happened because God uh, eliminated the enemy army in one night. The angel of the Lord breathed in the face of the foe as he passed, as Lord Byron says in his great poem. And the whole army was destroyed. And God's will was carried out and God's word validated. So God instilled faith in Hezekiah. God is trying to instill faith in Moses here to be obedient because God has promised that this will come to fruition. Now God responds to Moses' protest in a way that makes it clear that God did not expect Moses to do the task in his own strength. I'm not telling you, Moses, to go up there and, and try to convince Pharaoh and try to convince Israel in just your own ability. He says, I'm going to be with you. That's his promise. Certainly I will be with you. God was saying to Moses that just as certainly as I am speaking to you this day from this burning bush, I will empower you to deliver Israel because it is I, God, who is the deliverer with a capital D. It's not you, Moses. You're simply the instrument, the channel through whom I am working. But I am the deliverer. Question is, do we really understand this truth ourselves in the nitty-gritty daily grind of life? Do, do we understand this truth? We can intellectually comprehend it, but does it really filter down to where we live. Jo uh, Moses was not going to be able to change Pharaoh's heart. He wasn't going to be able to walk up to Pharaoh and say, all right, Pharaoh, you've got to do this. 
because God said so. And you've got to let my people go. Moses could not do that. And you and I cannot char change the hearts of men and women. You and I can't walk up to our agnostic neighbor or our atheistic cousin and, and, and say, all right, you've got to know the Lord because I say so. You know, they just laugh in your face. Just as Moses could not deliver Israel in his own strength, so you and I cannot bring righteousness and justice to this land just because we say so. It can only come through the power of God. God, in his sovereign ways, chooses to use our testimony, our walk, our daily walk, whatever that may be, our prayers, as weak as all these things may be, God chooses to use them to bring about his sovereign will. I, I suppose that's very important for him to do that, to include us in, in the work that he's doing. I mean, God could just stand up there in his great palaces of heaven and pull the strings like a puppeteer, and everything happens according to his plan. And, and of course, we might say, well, what's the purpose of it all, you know? But he chooses to use us. Doesn't need to, doesn't have to. But he so chooses to do. I mean, he could have come down and said to Pharaoh, let the people of Israel go or you're a dead man. <laughs> he said that to Laban, didn't he? Laban was chasing after Jacob and, and he came to Laban in a dream and says, don't touch Jacob. God could have done the same thing to Pharaoh. Pharaoh believed in dreams, but God didn't. He said, I'm going to use Moses to lead my people out of Egypt. Sometimes we question God. Why do you do it this way instead of that way? Why can't you just turn that person's heart? But God chooses to use us. Interestingly, God gave Moses a sign. And when you read this, this passage here, as we did this morning, let me just go back to it here in verse 12. And God said, certainly I will be with you. This shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. If you really analyze that, this becomes a very strange sign when you, you think about it. Now, first of all, we have to acknowledge it was a very powerful visual aid. Moses was standing before this burning bush which was at the base of Mount Horeb. And this mountain was sweeping up into the, uh, to dominate the skyline around him. This great granitic peak rising up 7,500 feet into the air, relatively barren of any kind of vegetation, uh, like a giant monolith. It, it was a powerful thing, as I will be with you as certainly as this mountain is here and that you will worship with Israel on this mountain. It was a vivid image, <laughs> not some, you know, ephemeral thing, not, not some hazy, nebulous vision out there, but a rock right in front of his face. Secondly, the fact that God said, you will worship is with Israel on this mountain presupposes the success of his mission. You couldn't worship with Israel here if you don't <laughs> succeed, right? So obviously you're going to succeed. And when you go back to that passage, back to the verse, he says, this is the sign that I have sent you when you, <laughs> you know, you kind of like a sign beforehand or a sign during rather than a sign afterwards. When you're back here with all of Israel and you're worshiping on this mountain, this is the sign that I sent you in the first place after it's all over and you've been successful. It seems uh, a little bit of a strange sign, but it was a powerful image to Moses. It was a great promise. Verse 13, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And 
God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. Here we have one of the greatest and most powerful passages in all of Holy Writ. God reveals more of himself in this passage than in almost any other passage of such brevity in all of Scripture. Moses has tentatively accepted the assignment, but as far as Moses is concerned, it's not yet a done deal. He has major reservations. Basically, he's saying to, to, to God, let me paraphrase what we read here, let's say I'm going to go to Israel, and let's say I'm going to tell them that the God of their fathers has sent me to deliver them. But what if they say, what's his name? What do I say? To me, it's very interesting to contrast this, this theophany, this vision that Moses has with that of Isaiah. Let's go back for a moment uh, to Isaiah chapter 6 and um, review that familiar vision. Because I think there's an interesting contrast here. Verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. Notice, if you will, the plurality in that verse. Who will go for us? I don't think God is talking about seraphim here. He's talking about the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Isaiah responds, here am I, send me. Now, this passage has been used many times as a missionary challenge and other things, and it's, it's great for that. But I think here what we see in part is a man who is intimately acquainted with God, who understands the power of God, who has seen a powerful vision. These words, I don't think, even begin to show us what Isaiah really saw. He couldn't put in words everything that he saw. I mean, the grandeur of it all, the power of it all, it was so awesome that, that he was smitten in the very heart of his sin. How can I even see this? I, I'm so sinful. And remember, he was God's man, God's prophet. He had witnessed this vision of God's glory, and he was absolutely fearless in his commitment to God. He doesn't say, but, 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 but Lord, I don't write so well. You know, I can't be me got to be someone else. He just boldly says, here am I, Lord, send me. It so contrasts, I think, with Moses' response here. Whatever God wanted, he was ready to do instantaneously. Why? Because he was convinced in his heart who God was and his power and his glory and of his ability to, to bring about what he wished to do. Moses, I think, in contrast, was a man who had not yet Come, become as intimately acquainted with God. He hardly knew the one to whom he was talking in the bush. He had not seen a vision. He had, as far as we know, it had no encounter with God before at all. All he knew of God had come down to him through oral tradition. Whatever Amram and Jochebed had been able to instill in him, 
whatever he had learned in the 40 years that he was wandering there in the wilderness, whatever he had learned from Jethro, his father-in-law, that's all he knew. There's no record of him ever seeing God or hearing from God prior to this moment at the burning bush. So Moses didn't know God as well as Isaiah did. And so he didn't yet have the confidence that Isaiah had. And that's what this burning bush episode is all about. It's instilling in Moses that confidence, that faith, to be able to go forth in God's strength to do the, the job. Isaiah knew when he said, here am I, send me, that he wasn't going to do it in his strength because he had witnessed the majestic power of God. I'm just going to be the implement that God will use. It, can, it will be done because he has so sovereignly willed it. Moses is coming to that place, but he's not yet there, as we will see. His experience had consisted of 40 years of sophisticated worldly education in Egypt and very unsophisticated, pragmatic Bedouin life. I mean, kind of like black and white, you know, as, as far as the experiences of life were concerned. But taking those together now and and using God as the catalyst of, of bringing it together and empowering it, Moses will, of course, be well prepared to do the job. But he doesn't know it yet. He's very hesitant. He doesn't know if he can obey. And he wants to know the answer to a very, very fundamental, profound question first. Who are you? It reminds me of Paul riding on his donkey to Damascus and his brilliant light knocks him off his donkey under the ground and the voice comes out of heaven and he says, Who are you, Lord? He didn't know who he was. Moses doesn't really know who God is yet. And I think we're looking at something much more profound than that we might get from just a surface reading of, of this passage. He is not asking God, What is your name? Just like you'd walk up into Egyptians and say, what's the names of your God? Osiris and Isis and Amun-Re and Hathor and, and, and Anubis and so forth. Just a bunch of names attached to supposed deities. He's not here also admitting that he doesn't know the name Yahweh. He's, he's not admitting that here either. But what he is really asking for is the authority and the power represented by that name. Who are you? I don't want to just know a name. I want to know who you are. What is your power? What is your authority? What are your attributes? That's what he's asking here. It's a deep, deep question. Who am I dealing with here? Can you really do what you say you're going to do through me? Now, it's very, very interesting, I think, to note how God responds to this. God doesn't reach down and go, whap, whap, wake up, buddy. God totally takes him at his word. God does not reprimand him for asking this question. He takes no offense because, you see, God knows his heart, and, and we understand that. God knew that he was ignorant of him. He didn't really know him. And God also knew that he was sincere in his desire for knowledge. He really wanted to know. And he had a right to know if he was going to go and do this big thing that God was asking him to do. So God responds in the fullest way that was possible for God to respond, giving the, given the limitations of human mind and human language. And so he responds and he says, Hayah, Ashur Hayah. I am that I am. That's who is sending you. That's the one you're to say is sending you to the people. So what is he saying by Hayah, Ashur Hayah? He is saying that I am the infinite self-existent, and, and that's really critical to understanding God. God is self-existent. You and I live in, in a world where everything has a beginning and everything has an ending. I mean, even the world. 
We read it, in the beginning God created the world, and we read it at the other end, and it's all going to melt in a fervent heat. And so we view a beginning and we view an ending, and you and I are born, and you and I will die someday, and, and civilizations rise and civilizations fall, and it's very difficult for us to step out of, of that framework and to think of one who exists by authority of himself, who has no beginning, who has no ending, who's always existed, and our question is, huh, what did he do before he made the world? If he's always been around, how's he entertained himself? <laughs> I mean, it's hard to imagine how God couldn't have had a beginning. Seems like he had to start someplace. That's, you know, you go back to Greek mythology and you look at whatever God it is and you always discover well, that God was born or created by some other God. And you keep going back. They do finally arrive at a place where they don't know what to do beyond that, you know. You get back to Saturn and, and uh, you know, Saturn kind of like the chief of all the gods, but, but even he somehow fits back into the, the great world mind or something or other. So this is a very, uh, you know, fathomless uh, concept here. The infinite self-existent creator without beginning, without ending without any limit in any area by anything or anyone. It's, it's so beyond our experience. No. I can do this, I can't do that. I have the authority to do this, I don't have the authority to do that. But with God, there's, there's no limit to his authority, there's no limit to his ability, there's no limit to his power. I mean, whatever he chooses to do, he can do because he's got the power to do it and the authority to do it. And that's really hard for us to really comprehend. But that is what he is saying here. The Egyptian gods all had limited power. And their authority actually overlapped. You, you try to study Egyptian mythology, and we've talked a little bit about it when we did Genesis. And, and this god did this thing, but this god did this thing. And they kind of overlapped each other. And every once in a while their names kind of blurred together. And, and it's hard to separate Hathor from Isis and, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the falcon god from, from Amun-Re, the sun god. And it kind of all blurs together. But with God, there's no blurring. There's no limitation. And that is, of course, why we cannot be what this nation is supposed to be, pluralistic in every way, accepting of everybody and everything and every belief. Whatever anybody believes, that's okay because we're all going to get there someday. We just need to hold to what we believe. Not if this is the God we worship. and Not if he said what he has said in this, in this book. Then, then nothing else is God. <laughs> and all the rest of it is just human fabrication and it's a waste of time. And it's worse than that. It's damnable because so many will be led to oblivion because of it. Lloyd Ogilvie, in a book he wrote called The Lord of the Impossible, says that we have here the verb to be given in the future tense. And he says one of the tra possible translations of Hayah, Ashur Hayah, which is translated here, I am that I am, is I will cause to happen what I will cause to happen. In other words, that somehow there's a linking between being and action. I am that I am, I will cause to happen what I will cause to happen. It's all, it's all linked together in God. And, and it's, it seems to be beyond our purview for real understanding, and that's why we have to accept on faith what's being said here. God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, immutable, transcendent. He's all these things. And yet he has chosen to act in the course of human affairs. So, so many people have a hard time with the Christian God and the Christian religion, the Christian Bible, because they've stared out at the universe <clears throat> And they've discovered, of course, that uh, we're just in one little solar system, which is just kind of an average solar system in an average galaxy. On and on it goes, ad infinitum. 
And so how in the world could a God great enough to create all this be worried about little bugs down here on this teeny little rock that's virtually invisible? And that's, of course, what's the majesty of it all? The God who could make all that, and according to the scriptures, has got a name for all those hundreds of trillions of stars and so forth out there, that the God could do all that cares about us little bits of protoplasm floating around on this little rock, circling an average star in an average galaxy. God chooses to touch the lives of individuals. God chooses to guide the course of human history. He chose to do it. It's his will to do it. He doesn't have to do it. He desires to do it. And he has the power and the desire to do through Moses what he has commanded Moses to do. Moses, I want you to do this, and I will enable you to do it. You just have to go along and be my instrument. He is the Lord of the impossible. There are so many passages in Scripture which talk about <clears throat> God dealing with things that are impossible. But in Matthew 19, we have an explicit statement to that effect. Matthew 19, verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished said, Then who can be saved? And looking upon them, Jesus said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are impossible. We don't quite relate to that passage in the same way they did in those days, because to us we say, Of course the rich aren't going to go to heaven. They're a bunch of jerks. You know, the way they spend their money and the way they live their lives, it's obvious they don't give a rip about God or anything else. But of course to translate ourselves back into this time, to realize that they had almost developed a mentality of, of being able to buy God, you know, by giving great amounts and helping to build great edifices to the Lord. And all of this is, is bound to create for them a greater chance to get to heaven than for us poor little peons who can't do much for God. And so for them, the very idea that the rich who've done so much for God, who've built the synagogues and, and helped finance the temple, uh, that, that these people aren't going to get to heaven, then what's the hope for any of us? But with God, all things are possible. And when we think of our own lives, we have to acknowledge that God has done the impossible in bringing us into to his family. You and I could have been born at a different time in a different place. You could have been born to different parents. You could have been in a different situation altogether. And that could have led to a situation in which you never would have heard of God, at least to the, in the way that you did. And, and you could die in your sins, as so many thousands and millions are doing every day. You know, we, we have a song that was written by A.B. Simpson, a hundred thousand souls a day are passing one by one away. Well, of course, that needs to be modified. It's closer to 150,000 today than it was back when he wrote the song. And you think about it, 150,000 people are perishing every day, leaving this planet forever. And what percentage of them know the Lord? Probably very small. And so we are extremely blessed to be amongst those who do, because one day we will be part of that statistic. But that will be joy, because we will graduate, if you will, the ultimate commencement. So God is instructing Moses, when you go to Israel and they say, who has sent you? Say them that I am, Hayah, has sent me. Now most of the Israelites at that time wouldn't understand who Hayah was any more than Moses did, probably, at that moment. But he, as we'll note, he used to link that with something else. But both Moses and the Israelites would begin to know who he was as they faced the Red Sea. And it parted and they crossed on dry land. And as God carried them through the Sinai and, and water sprang from solid rock and food 
came down from heaven like dew. And God saved them from their enemies. And God spoke to them from Mount Horeb. They would begin to know who Hayah was. But at this moment, they're a little bit mystified, certainly even as Moses would be. But he was to link it with the instructions that we read there in verse 15. And furthermore, God said, okay, don't just stop with Hayah, Asher Hayah, or Hayah, I am. You shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. So this is to be linked with Yahweh, which is the word translated there, the Lord. Yahweh. The Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So now we have Jehovah, or Yahweh, we have Elohim, Hayah, the self-existent, almighty, omnipresent one, without beginning, without ending, is the one who has sent me to you. Yahweh was the name by which Israel was to forever know God. Yahweh was his memorial name. And what's interesting is, scholars are not in agreement on this, but some scholars believe that because Yahweh has some configuration very similar to Hayah, I am, that the, word, the name Yahweh is actually a derivative from Hayah, and therefore, it incorporates or encompasses all that phrase meant. And of course, we would have to agree, maybe not with the etymology of the word, but with the truth of the fact that Yahweh is the self-existent, eternal, omnipresent one. Now, in verses 14 and 15 of this passage, not in two volumes of theology text, but in two verses... God gave to Moses all that he needed to know in order to carry out God's plan. In order to go to Israel and tell them who had sent them, him and what the message was, and in order to stand before Pharaoh. That's all he needed. Moses was to be sent as an ambassador to Israel and to Egypt. As he was sent as an ambassador to Israel and to Egypt, so we know that we are also ambassadors in our age to those that are in our social framework. What is different is that Moses went with relatively limited knowledge of who God was. There's no excuse for us going with such limit because we have the entire Word of God in our hands here. And if we're familiar with it, then the more familiar we are with that Word, the more familiar we are with Him with the one who has sent us. And whereas Moses, you know, God said to go and deliver Israel. Okay, I know that's part of the program here. But, but Moses didn't have a worldwide scope in his understanding of God's program. But you and I should have. God has sent us into the whole world to minister the truth of his salvation. We understand the fullness of his program, the fullness of his power, and who he is. So we have much more to work with than Moses had. We might like to say, but, but you know, I go out and witness my neighbor, and God doesn't send 10,000 frogs to scare him to death. No. God doesn't kill every other animal in his backyard so that he knows that God is really there speaking. But we have so much more. We have the Holy Spirit of the living God. And, and, you know, part of it is, I think, learning how to rest in that and not be anxious. We go, oh, these people are going to know the Lord. We worry and we fret. Rather than say, you know, if we live faithfully and whenever the opportunity is there, we give the word God wants us to give, it's His Spirit's job to bring them. Ours to pray, His to save. What's to fret about? Hard to translate it, that into reality, though. Our, the testimony of our lifestyle, and that is a very, very powerful testimony. What was it uh, our pastor, or who was it, recently quoted from St. Francis, where 
I think it was St. Francis said that we're to witness wherever we go and use words if necessary. <laughs> I may be misquoting who it was but said that, but anyway, that's the idea. It's our lifestyle that's supposed to testify the truth. We live Christ before others, and that's, that's a more powerful uh, testimony than, than our words only. Not that we don't ever use words. We, we should, whenever the opportunity is, presents itself. But our lifestyle should convince people of the reality of what we believe. And just this morning I was thinking, I don't know why this came into my mind, but I was wondering, how many members of the Mafia are committed Roman Catholics? Uh, you know, that, that is such a, a contrast. How, how could you live this lifestyle and yet believe that God somehow is going to uh, smile on you? Now, I, I don't know, maybe most of the mafia are atheists. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, but, you know, they, they dominate southern Italy, which is one of the more reactionary parts of Italy. It's the part of Italy that still kind of lives in the medieval world in many ways. Hasn't been as touched by the modernistic stuff as northern Italy has. And so you just wonder, you know, how people can think that way. But, but there are many who do. As I mentioned to you, I think, uh, oh, this is many months ago, when, when Billy Graham was witnessing to a mobster. He wanted to know if he could be a Christian mobster. You know. <laughs> and you think about that for a minute. <laughs> Our lifestyle and our words are to help lead a reluctant people out of Egypt, out of the kingdom of darkness, and to lead them to the promised land that is into the kingdom of light. Reading is, is Egypt. <laughs> the vast majority of people in Reading are, are living in Egypt, as it were. And uh, our task here, as part of this church and individually, as God gives us the opportunity is to be a part of those leading them out of Egypt into the promised land. Moses, when he stood before Israel and Pharaoh, if, if he had to depend upon his own strength, he was in trouble. And so it is with us. For you and for me to try to persuade someone of the reality of Christ is just to get a big ha-ha in your face. Now, you guys are still living in the Victorian age. How can you believe that? I mean, when you read uh, about the, the great, science, quote, scientific minds of this day and uh, how they view Christianity as so reactionary, as, as so medieval, they don't understand how any modern person could possibly believe in Christianity because it doesn't fit with modern evolution of life, whether you're talking about neo-Darwinianism or punctuated evolution, you know, where the leapfrog type thing. Whichever way you believe, the whole idea of Christianity is, is ridiculous to these people. So how can they ever be saved? Well, they can't just by our trying to say, well, you're a bunch of dummies, you know, if you think that, because I'm a Christian, and, and if you don't believe the way I do, you're going to go to hell. And won't probably get very far with them. But if God's Spirit pierces through that hardness and touches their soul, <laughs> nothing will keep them out of the kingdom of God. And it's our place to be the instrument that God may use to touch lives. God convinced Israel to believe Moses. Even after, as we'll, we'll get to that place probably someday, where the people complained to Moses, said, now look, you went to Pharaoh and all we got out of this is now we have to go collect our own straw to make the bricks on top of it all. And still make as many bricks. You, you've gotten us into more trouble. But still they believed. And, and Pharaoh was convinced. It was a long, arduous road. But Pharaoh finally was convinced he better let the people go, if only by intimidation. And he did. So it is God will turn hearts by his power today. And he does change people's hearts. But he simply wants us to participate in the process. We need to be available. Moses didn't have a whole lot else to do at the time. You know, somebody else could watch the sheep for a while. We may think sometimes we're indispensable in whatever it is we're doing, but we aren't. God can use us if we're available. And Paul in Philippians tells us <clears throat> why we should 
relax in that. Because God says, or Paul says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It is God who is at work. We participate in the process, as Moses participated in the process, by faithfully obeying God. And one of the most <clears throat> key aspects of our obedience today is prayer. I was reading, we, we get a newsletter from, um, that's put out concerning the mission field in Ecuador and the, up, keeping up on all the different people <clears throat> and what's been going on in their lives. And they mentioned one person who was one of the founders of the radio station HCJB. He was a, a, a missionary back in Ecuador, way back in the 30s <clears throat> and beyond. But the, this person mentions the fact that this individual, this, this missionary now, has been elevated to the highest position in the Christian life. The, the most important place in, in the church, that of intercessory prayer. He's 97, I think, and, and not too much able to do much else. And that's the way the world would look at it, and sometimes the way we look at it, too. But the way that was put was so wonderful. This person has been elevated now, has found the... How shall I... <laughs> I hate to put this, uh, sounds crass, maybe. But has now merited the right to be an intercessory prayer warrior. It's the highest position of the church. The most important position in the church. Because without it, the rest of it is going to fall flat and not accomplish anything. As we pray and as we live faithfully, we're going to reap great reward. Joy, and that wonderful word from the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, but translated in the Greek, from the Hebrew, shalom. Peace, in, which includes all that the word well-being includes. Mental, physical, emotional, spiritual well-being. Shalom. And of course, we gain a sense of worth and a sense of community, a sense of fellowship. And more important than anything else, we become more like Christ in attitude and purpose. This morning, as I was studying this again, I was reminded of Jesus' words in the 15th chapter of John. He says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. And that's what this is all about. Moses, I am the vine, you are the branch, and I want you to fruit. And all you need to do is unclog those xylemes and phloemes, <laughs> or whatever they are, so that the power of God can move through and the branch can produce fruit. And that's what God is saying to us. Well, next week we'll look at verse 16. Moses has one great excuse yet left for not going, and uh, we'll talk about that.